Chapter 11 of Murder Takes the Veil by Margaret Ann Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter 11 You have a beautiful throat, my dear, exquisitely slender, and you carry your head well. You would think that all American women would stand proudly. They have everything in the world to inspire them. But no, they slouch and sag. In Europe, where sometimes a woman carries all her worldly goods in a basket on her head, that's where you see the beautiful postures. Tobolson laid aside a brush and carefully selected a clean one. Trillium, seated on the dais, did not attempt a reply. The pulse beat hard in her throat. Perhaps he had noticed. He could require her to sit there under his minute observation, conscious of every heartbeat and change of expression, but she would neither make conversation nor pretend to enjoy it. He had asked her advice many times in the draping of the white material around her, explaining how she would be the main figure of the central group, the personification of the spiritual, and Trillium's acknowledgment had been small. Now, she thought, let him talk to himself if he finds the silence too oppressive. For her own, she had other preoccupations, the part she must play in the hunt tonight, the dark halls, and the stealthy journey to the hiding place with the object they had selected as the golden fleece. There could be no possible danger, she told herself, for the hundredth time. The halls would be crowded, even though the crowd remained invisible in the darkness, and there was added safety in the secrecy surrounding the chairman's identity. When the bell rang, Trillium shed her white draperies and emerging in blouse and skirt, stepped down from the dais. "'Tomorrow, then, at the same time?' Tobolson asked as she left. "'Yes, sir.' said Trillium, and slipped past Nerissa Brady, who was entering. Nerissa had no objection to posing. Dropping her books on a chair, she hurried over to look at the first sketch of Trillium resting on the easel. It was blocked in highlights and shadows, broadly done, but the eyes, gazing up at something far beyond the border of the picture, were so expressive of fear and sadness that even Nerissa was shocked. This was a Trillium she did not know, a stranger with familiar features. Tolwitzen was sitting back in the armchair against the wall, brooding over his work, the girl forgotten. And Uncle Tor, Nerissa saw, had upon him the same sadness as the painted face. Instead of questioning, as she would have liked to do, she stepped back quietly, afraid to interrupt the artist's reverie. It was not Nerissa's way to be still when she wanted to talk, but Tor's mood discouraged conversation. In the strong north light, surrounded by the bare studio setting, there was a starkness about him, a stripping away of all pretense, the genial uncle character gone. Nerissa was frightened. She was just deciding to move noiselessly to the door and leave him to his lonely musings, when he spoke, deep in his throat, as if it made no difference whether anyone heard but himself. I've had to bring myself to believe that everyone must be somewhat selfish in his determination to succeed. That too great generosity spreads the faculties too wide, that one's powers must be concentrated into more or less selfish service. But when I see her... He paused, shaking his head. She looks afraid there, Nerissa said, barely above her breath. Yes, she is. Nerissa's green eyes grew round. Oh, please, don't paint me like that. To her embarrassment, he laughed. 
I won't have to, my dear. You aren't afraid of anything. Nerissa smiled and went back to the portrait. If I were going to be as scared as she is, I'd have refused to be chairman. I'd have said I was afraid of the dark and told them to elect someone else. Tovoltson picked up a tube of paint and squeezed a long white worm out onto his palette. Is she afraid of the dark, Nerissa? Well, of course. What else is there? We hide the fleas tonight. I mean, Trillium and whoever she chooses to go with her will hide it, and I'll bet a nickel will be Mary Liz, because she's Trill's best friend now that Helen... Oh. The artist seemed to be far more interested in his paints than in Nerissa's chatter. He inspected the palette, grunted, and went into an explanation of her position in the group. When Crispin Archer wandered in a quarter of an hour later, Tor was engrossed in his sketching, but Nerissa saw that the visitor stopped in amazement when he caught his first glimpse of Trillian's portrait, and he was still studying it when the bell rang and the model had to take a reluctant departure. "'That's good, Tor,' Crispin said. "'Too bad it's only a sketch, but you made it on canvas, I see. Planning to do something with it?' Nerissa's sketch was done on board, like all preliminary studies. Trust Archer to notice that the other one was aimed at permanence. Tolson laughed, gathering up his brushes. You resisted the temptation to make a siren out of the green-eyed redhead. I see, Crispin added. You're well advised, Tor. I try. You'll have to excuse me a minute, Chris. Have to wash these before the paint cakes. Be right back. Tovoltson, his hands bristling with brushes, departed. But when his footsteps had died away in the hall, he came quietly back and peered in through the crack of the door. Archer was sitting where he himself had been, arms folded, contemplating the dark, painted eyes of Trillium's portrait. When light steps began to climb the stairs, Tor hurried along to his destination, unsmiling, his expression remote and thoughtful, as Nerissa had seen it. He took his time with the brushes, and when he re-entered the studio, Archer was gone, and little Minna Marsh, the blonde of the mural trio, popped up from the edge of the chair where she had been seated. Mr. Tovoltson, did you ever see a churn man? A real one? The artist dropped his brushes into their jar. What a very young question. No, Minna, never have I seen a churn man. Why? Because there's one down in the barnyard now and everybody's out there, just everybody. Everybody but us, eh? Yes, sir. Tobolson sighed. The mood of the model was important to him, and for all Minna's heaven-blue eyes and golden curls, she could not assume an angelic expression while her thoughts twiddled around some sort of three-ring circus going on in the barnyard. Ah, well, tomorrow then, Minna, he said. Yes, sir. The girl was a streak of blue in the doorway, then a thumping of saddle shoes on the stairs, and Tovoltson was alone. He sat down in his armchair, but he could not stay where he had to look at Trillium's portrait. And the sun was bright, the day beautiful, as Indian summer in the north. I shouldn't go to the barnyard, he thought. I should keep at work. But if everyone else was there, his absence might be noted more readily than his presence. Taking a sketch pad and pushing a pencil up under his beret, he tramped down the stairs. It had been a case of love at first sight between Sister Atene and the Charman's dog. With his master, who was small and quick and wizened like a monkey on a stick, 
the great creature paused to gaze across the barnyard to where her old sister sat on an upturned bucket in the sun-warm shelter of glorious sunflowers. No one had challenged their walk up the long road from the gate, and the churnman was confident. He knew all about convents. If he could once get inside, get talking to one of the sisters, the battle was half over. My personality, he he, was how he would explain it. But the dog broke the ice here. Lifting his huge paws, precisely, he padded across to the old sister, stepped neatly around the milk pan in which Tom was soaking his feet, and laid his enormous head gently in her lap. Fanty cackled, and Tom fanned his tail in majestic hatred. But Sister Etienne put her hand on the big smooth head and looked down into the beautiful eyes and lost her heart completely. Name's Taffy. He's a Newfoundland, fine strain, maybe part St. Bernard. Ha <laughs> ha, said the charm man, and his little eyes darted around the farm buildings and over to the cloister. Everything's solid, good financial state. Ought to be able to talk them into a churn. The man began a sly sales line, which was lost on Sister Etienne, because the dog's tongue had fluttered against her cheek, and when he lay down, he was so big that his shoulder touched her knee, and his head, which he placed immediately again in her lap, was so heavy it was like holding a whole animal. Through the misery of the past week, forsaken, worried, weary from the continual searching for her lost habit, Sister Hattine had relinquished the thought of ever regaining contentment, much less happiness. Then, suddenly, across the barnyard, this marvelous, trusting creature had come, and Hattine's anxieties rolled away. "'Is he for sale, sir?' she asked. "'Foolish, of course. No one would sell such a dog.' But surprisingly enough, the chairman replied, Oh, sure, right enough, ma'am, with the churn, that is. The churn? Sister Etienne peered around and saw nothing but a hazy little man before her. Nothing to it. If I could give a demonstration, it'd all be an open book, yeah. Oh, how do, ma'am? This last was to Glory Muckleroy, who had come out to lean on her fence, where the sunflowers had been pruned for exactly such a purpose. "'My, is that a dog, mister?' she asked. Without turning her head, she shouted, "'Addy Pearl, bring the kids and come see.' The Muckleroys, Munro, Hattie Bell, Manessa, and Addie Pearl, with Palmer on her hip, responded with a slam of the kitchen door behind them. "'Having a bite of lunch we was,' Glory said by way of explanation for the presence of the entire brood. She was drowned out by the shouts of the children crowding around Taffy, who wagged his tail and accepted their homage with dignity, but continued to love old Ateen. Like I was saying, said the charm man, who knew an opportunity when he saw one, I could give you a demonstration easy. Got my kit right down at the gate. Didn't feel like I'd ought to drive in till I'd spoke to somebody. I never was one to horn in where I ain't wanted. I can see you got real nice manners, said Glory. The churn man winked at her. How about a demonstration, lady? What of? Ha ha, my churn. Oh, well, I guess we got one. Dash or kind? Electric. No good, said the man with a fine wave of his hand. Storm comes up. Out goes the power. No churnin. Now this here dog churn. Dog churn? A chorus repeated. Right ho. You wait, just you wait here, ladies, that's all I ask, and prepare to be amazed. With another wink at glory and a promising grin, 
the churn man patted Manessa on the head, and departed with such speed that he had reached the barnyard gate before Glory found her tongue. "'I reckon the dog's the best part of this outfit,' she said, "'and I don't hold with strange men winkin'. "'Mercy me! Did he wink?' Sister Teen murmured. "'I wonder if we shouldn't have had permission from Mother before we allow him to demonstrate.' "'Weren't much allowin' to it, seems if. But I was the one. Give in, Sister. You didn't have nothing to do with it.' Whatever uneasiness the two might have felt was dispatched in the general wonder at the churn man's equipment. His old truck was painted yellow with churn with burns, blaring across it in red. "'That's my name, Burns,' he said, and winked again at Glory. There seemed to be a great deal to the churn. When Mother Theodore discerned the unusual activity in the barnyard and decided to investigate, she came upon a scene of medieval proportions. In the center of a circle composed of the Muckleroys, Sister Etienne, all the college girls, several of the farmhands, and most of the faculty, the churn man's demonstration was taking place. Upon a large slanted treadmill, the dog was walking, shut into a stall, so that he never progressed forward, but simply turned the table as he walked. The turning set in motion a great contrivance of machinery underneath. The machinery manipulated a long arm which ran out to a large barrel churn, and the barrel rolled on its axis, end over end. Far at the back stood a silent line of contemplative sisters. A little removed from them was fat sister Emery from the kitchen, in her stiff white bonnet, which she wore during working hours. At a good distance, for perspective, the artist stood sketching. And holding forth beside the churn with every eye upon him was the churn man himself, declaiming the merits of his equipage. That he had already been over his routine several times was no deterrent for such an orator. With so attentive an audience, he felt that he could go on for hours. The churn worked superbly. The great golden dog reformed with endless patience, and the churn man wiped his forehead on the sleeve of his red shirt, and brought out every adjective known to the language. Unexpectedly, however, he ran down like a toy in need of winding. Oh, oh, murmured Franz Eric. Yes, indeedy, said Chris beside him. For Mother Theodore, in all her vast respectability, had emerged in an opening beside the truck and into the churn man's line of vision. Mother was the personification of authority, quiet, inflexible authority, and the churn man's facility of expression suddenly ran dry. The dog raised his head and slowed his pace until the treadmill stopped, whereupon the churn halted its sprightly tumbling. The whole wide entranced circle looked at Mother, and the only movement was the flutter of a sister's veil and the flip of Mr. Archer's yellow tie in the wind. Mother Theodore was not quite pleased. Everyone expected her to smash this pretty bubble of amusement with a word, and so, because she had both a contrary streak in her and a sense of humor, she smiled at the charm man. "'I seem to have missed entertainment, sir. Will you not continue for my pleasure?' Mother decided not to hear the universal gasp. The charm man bowed, and, realizing he had gotten off easy, bowed again. "'Burns is a name, ma'am.' Theophilus Burns, yes, ma'am. Now you see before you my invention. He was off on another oration. His invention, my eye, said Crispin Archer. If I'm not mistaken, my grandmother had one of these contraptions. She wasn't sold on it. The dog always got sick, 
and she had a dickens of a time till she trained my grandfather to walk the mill. About all the old boy was good for. Trillium, entranced as everyone, had gradually worked her way in to get a good view of the dog, and she had not noticed who were her neighbors in the crowd. Crispin Archer's voice startled her, but she didn't turn. She was learning not to respond to surprise. Franz Eric would be with them. The two were always together. Keeping her eyes ahead, she moved slowly away to the far side of the circle, then unobtrusively left it. The charm man, always sensitive to goings and comings among his audience, saw Trillium's departure, and, without interrupting so much as a comma of his discourse, scanned the crowd. There was a familiar face among them, and the charm man lifted his hand in friendly salute. Always best to recognize an acquaintance, even though, because of his extensive contacts with the public, he couldn't place this face immediately and give it a name. The one to whom he waved made no response, and the charm man thought absently that he must have been mistaken, and went on with his harangue. Glory McElroy heard Mr. Archer's remark about the grandfather. She liked Mr. Archer with his comical way of putting things. Tossing her laughter over her shoulder to him, she wished she could think of a good answer. Talk back plenty to high, she could, put him in stitches. But Mr. Archer was the deep kind, like something in a dictionary that had a dozen different meanings you'd never think of. Glory, came Mary Elizabeth's guarded whisper beside her. Did I get it all right? Sure thing, Miss Mary Elizabeth. It's right in my kitchen. Shh, the girl warned. But seeing no enemies within hearing, she continued audibly, We have the cage already, and we'll bring it over after dark. You be looking for us. But don't put on your porch light. It has to be a secret, remember. I'll watch out. Fine. Bye now. Mary Elizabeth moved away, and Glory, looking after her with a smile, saw that Mr. Archer was doing the same. My, you're only young once, ain't you, Mr. Archer, she said. Mr. Archer patted Palmer on the back and received a display of two teeth in return. In the autumn breeze, his tie stuck its tongue out, and in his eyes there was a distinct gleam of amusement. The charm man finished going through his paces without much heart. The minute I set eyes on her, I knowed she was no easy mark, he said to High Muckleroy when he came back from an extremely short conclave with Mother Theodore. Hard-headed all them dames is, at the head of convents. They gotta be, said High. Running a shebang like this is big business. Something like a flywheel you got under there, ain't it? The churn man dived half under the treadmill to point out the wonders of his invention. But before he quite disappeared, he sent one more glare of rather disgusted admiration after Mother. Well, I ain't sorry I done the setting up. Best crowd I've had in a coon's age. She offered me open house in the barn, too. Asked me to stay the night. A free night's lodging is money in the pocket, High observed. Glory and me, we'd be proud to have you eat with us. Now about this here flywheel. Seems to me like you ought to run another band. The churn man followed high in under the machinery, since by that time the crowd had dwindled to two freshmen, Sister Atene, the Muckeroy children, and Tom and Banty, all poor prospects. At an ordinary time at St. Aurelian's, fame would not have been so fleeting for the churn man. Girls would have paid visits all through the evening to the yellow truck, where they would have petted Taffy and listened to his master tell his stupendous adventures. The churn man expected it. He was entitled to hold court in the barnyard. 
but twilight straggled in from the swamp, and the churn man stood on the muckleroy's back porch with high, awaiting Glory's call to supper, and saw not a single candidate upon whom to exercise his powers of narration. "'Awful quiet,' he said. "'Lock em up, do they, come the gloaming?' "'Not as a reg their thing,' cried grinned. "'They'll be doings inside them old walls to-night.' "'Do tell,' said Theophilus Burns. High did. He knew from other years, when he had seen this strange night observed upon the campus, that the hiding of the Golden Fleece was like no other undertaking in the world. There would be no appointed hour. At any minute, from sunset to dawn, a girl might sneak out of a darkened room, slip to the hiding place with the trophy, and back again to the darkened room. All unknown because on this night there would be no lights in the building. No prefect would challenge her, for every sister except the portress in her little office would withdraw to the cloister and leave the way free for the hiding of the fleece. But there would be spies, watching and waiting, freshmen, sophomore, and junior spies in sneakers and blue jeans, who would glide through the halls following her. The seniors would thoughtfully provide decoys, of course, to lead them astray. But if by chance someone did follow the right one and guess where she hid the trophy, it would mean ignominious defeat for the defenders, even before the hunt opened, an unparalleled triumph for the hunters. In any event, the hunters had only thirty-six hours in which to find the fleece. Trillium, already in blue jeans, sweater, and gym shoes, sat on her bed and watched her door. In the two days since the letter from New Orleans had been due and had not come, she had haunted Mother's office. Uncle Henry was out of town on business. He could not forward the letter when he was not there. But his secretary could have done so. Never before had her mother's letter been late. Always the distinctive long envelope would be on the mail table with the other, unopened, inside it. Possibly moving to new quarters had delayed the writing. But as time passed and she kept tracing the weary circle around, it became less than ever possible for Trillium to believe that the letter had not arrived. It did come, she whispered through stiff lips her eyes on the darkening hall outside her open door. It did come, and he took it, and now he knows where my mother is, and he knows that I know he is threatening her. So I might be the only witness against him if he found her. He can't leave me alone any longer, and all I'm sure of is that he is one of three. What would Mother Theodore have told me if I had dared confide in her? But I couldn't, no matter what happens." A soft shuffling approached her door, and she sprang up. "'You ready?' Mary Elizabeth whispered. "'Then come on!' Trillian went softly out after her. "'When you don't know what else to do, do anything. There might not be safety in it, but at least you wouldn't go crazy with thinking.' Mother Theodore was in a light frame of mind. She could not remain quietly in her room, or in the office, or in the common room where the sisters gathered in the evening. She walked through all the halls of the first floor, past the auditorium, over to the west stairs. All was hushed, waiting, the silence punctuated with giggles, and once in a while the swift closing of a door. The moment darkness fell, the giggles and the expeditions from room to room would cease. With no motive in mind, Mother descended the old stairs leading to the tunnels, thinking to find the passages black-dark. Halfway along the corridor that ran under the building, the door of a room was open, and light streamed out. For a long, hesitant minute, Mother stood on the stairs, apprehensive, 
wondering why she should not go forward and speak to whoever was in the storeroom. The general ghostliness of the ancient place, coupled with her dread of the night ahead, that was what held her on the stairs. It had nothing whatever to do with the presence of someone in the storeroom. Ashamed of herself, Mother went resolutely toward that open door. Now she could hear the short scrape of a box being pushed along the stone floor, a rustle of paper. And then she saw into the room. In the brilliant light of the unshaded overhead bulb, a sister was working with her back to the door, bent half into the large packing case she had pushed a moment earlier. Mother smiled. After all, who had she expected to find here in the basement depths? And who was it? Even the sisters themselves could not always be sure of another's identity from a back view. Sister? The packer almost toppled into the big box, and the hand she put out to steady herself was familiar. Oh, Sister Raymond, Mother exclaimed, forgive me for startling you. What are you doing, so busy at this time of night? Sister Raymond laughed, catching her breath. I'm putting away the mustard seed costumes. We just piled them all in here, helter-skelter, after the play, and I thought this would be a good time to sort them. I'd like to do it myself, then I know where everything is. She held up what had been a drift of white chiffon, now flattened and wrinkled from its sojourn under a dozen others. It's still lovely, isn't it, Mother? But Mother Theodore stared at it in horror. When Sister Raymond heard a strangled sound and turned to see her superior's face, she was terrified. Mother, what's the matter? Mother's lip opened twice before her voice came. The costume. I didn't know you kept Helen's. Helen's? The sister's veil fluttered. So instantly did she turn to make certain of what she held. Helen's? Oh, no, Mother, this is Trillium's. Sister Raymond shook out the delicate folds, as if she must demonstrate beyond a doubt that they were neither stained nor torn. And Mother Theodore smiled, more than a little disgusted with herself. Of course, I might have known you wouldn't. I have forgotten how very much alike the two costumes were, sister. Exactly alike, only for the color of the veils, pink and blue. The girls looked like twins. I'll never forget it. Never. The sister's hand lay gently upon the chiffon, lay until it went up to wipe away a tear that crept down under her glasses. Then she bent and dropped the costume into the box. Mother Theodore slowly nodded. You could pack away the one remaining garment, but not the remembrance of its twin. Sister, could you leave this until another time? If you wish me to, Mother. No, it was merely a suggestion. You may continue if you desire, Sister. Thank you, Mother. The Superior looked back from the doorway. Trillium and Helen... What should she remember about them? Something tapped at her consciousness. Walking through the dark hall, wondering what the tantalizing thing could be, worrying a little about Sister Raymond down there alone with her quiet tears, Mother failed to awaken memory. She opened the big front door and came out on the main steps, then strolled on down to the drive where she loved to walk back and forth in the evening. Tonight she had many thoughts to keep her company, Trillium's haunting of the office for the letter that had not been there. Trillium's fear. Always Trillium. Mother's slow patrol halted abruptly. The tantalizing thing had ceased to tantalize and had popped full-blown into her mind. The terrible realization held her still. 
her face turned to the west where the sun had already set, and she shivered under her warm cloak, because her heart had stopped beating life through her body. She was certain of what she believed, sure she was right. Jarvis would have to know. At the thought of Jarvis, she felt warmth beat through her again. He was only as far away as her own office telephone. She had reached the steps when she heard someone behind her, someone who walked with a steady, light tread, and swiftly. Mother wheeled, not realizing that her position on the step gave her the height of a giantess, that the twilight muffled her figure, until she appeared to be a twin to Mary Elizabeth's phantom nun. She was amazed, then, at the strange expression upon the face of the young man who confronted her, stupefaction, incredulity. "'Good evening, mother,' said Franz Eric. "'I didn't see you in the dark. I hope I didn't startle you.' "'No.' He glanced around, and his eyes fell on the village lights twinkling a mile away. "'I'm going into town to a movie. It's a perfect night for a walk.' Yes, said Mother. Franz hesitated, then smiled and saluted her. Good night, Mother. Good night, Mr. Eric. He strode away, a bareheaded, slight young man, without a care for anything other than his own entertainment. But he could have cut across the lawn to the gates from the guest house without making this long circle up to the convent. And the last show, as Mother knew from various young ladies, started at eight. The clock in the tower had just struck a quarter past. She stood watching until Franz was only a light speck well outside the gates. Over in the guest house, a lamp glowed behind a window with an undrawn shade. Mother Theodore went straight up the steps and into the main hall. The light from Sister Osmond's office was enough to show her the way. Without turning on any other, she hurried quietly to her own office. She had suddenly remembered that there was also a strange man in the barnyard tonight. The strange man, however, was not at the moment in the barnyard, but in McElroy's kitchen, watching the transfer of a young muskrat from a makeshift cage to a gaudy red one, equipped with all the animal comforts of home. With Glory and the children kneeling around them, and advised by High and the churn man, Trillium and Mary Elizabeth coaxed all the little muskrats stared with beady eyes. Had quite a time getting him. I said importantly, impressing the churn man. Don't know as anybody but me could have done it. Them trappers is pretty persnickety about their mushquash, even just borrowing, like. Glory looked up proudly at her husband, and Mary Elizabeth sighed. He's just perfect, High. He's the most beautiful golden fleece we've ever had. The little muskrat crouched in the bedecked cage. He was young, half-grown, and he was scared. With his pale belly fur clean and soft, his back shining dark with the guard hairs that make a coat so durable, his little round ears giving him the air of a defenseless baby, he stared into the circle of faces. I don't believe he appreciates all we've done for him, observed Mary Elizabeth. High making the cage, Mercy Harding painting it with all these fuddy duddies, and the crown sparkling like the king's jewels. She touched the little pin which was tied to the cage with a ribbon. I reckon he'd rather have a nice mud hole, said Glory. It was Trillium who remembered the urgency of the hour, the dark run to be made when Glory's door went shut behind them. Tonight there was no moon to hang like a witch's lantern over the swamp and make palisades of the convent walls and turn the hyacinths into a solid floor. Mary Elizabeth was telling the Muckleroys how the fleece would be hidden. 
The hunters, of course, expected them to make a good many fake expeditions first, and then, when the spies were occupied on false trails, to make a break to hide the treasure. And so, since that was what the hunters looked to happen, the committee planned to turn the tables on them. We'll hide the fleece first, and then lead them a merry chase afterward, Mary Elizabeth confided. Isn't that cute of us? Liz, come on, Trillian broke in. I'll take the little scamp, and you lead the way. Turn off the lights high. Glory led the two out into the night from the dark kitchen, and when they left the porch they were in a sea of blackness. The swamp was as still as it ever is. A short distance away, on the road leading out from town, an engine chugged. Even the guest house was dark. Over between the chapel and the opaque mass of the convent, the cloister walk arched blacker than the night. Come on, Trillian whispered. We'll cut over to the cloister. No one can see us there. Mary Elizabeth shuddered. Her imagination peopled the night with little dreads as they walked slowly across unseen grass, crept through a barely visible cloister walk, entering a building where familiar objects had assumed unfamiliar places in the pitch darkness. Trillium, holding the cage in both arms so it would not bump against some undiscernible object, trying to match her steps to Mary Elizabeth, was grimly certain that every inch of their progress was being followed. Once Trillium, on the stairs, halted, and Mary Elizabeth, instantly aware, stopped also. Neither of the girls breathed audibly. If there were a third presence anywhere on the stairs, it bided its time. And the time was not yet. When the girls moved on, the darkness stirred behind them. End of chapter 11